On today's episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I talk with Dr. Crawford Gribben about John Owen. So I think Owen's a fascinating figure for several re- reasons, and Crawford really is such a great storyteller in explaining the background, the cultural impact, the cultural influences of Owen, uh, the man, unfiltered. A lot of us, I think, come to Owen thinking he's this pristine, prestigious, uh, just major heavyweight thinker. I think Crawford really develops the humanity of Owen and helps us to understand what all is going on in his own development and thinking. We talk about a lot of topics. We talk about his relationship to medieval theology, uh, his thinking on scripture and tradition, uh, his think- thoughts on confessionalism, uh, his thoughts on the covenants and, and the doctrine of baptism, uh, his relationship to the Reformed tradition, and, and several other topics. So I think we're really going to enjoy the episode. I think, you know, people are more and more interested in Owen. So this is a really helpful introduction to his life and his thought, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we hope to encourage our listeners to think deeply and clearly. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today we're going to talk about the topic of John Owen uh, with Dr. Crawford Gribben. And I'm really excited about this because I think Owen is a very important figure. And uh, Crawford is very knowledgeable and has written quite a bit about him. So I think this is going to be quite a bit of fun. Um, considering both me and Brandon are Baptists, um, and we're on on the inter- internet with Twitter, you know, there's a lot of jokes about John Owen that go around about him being a Baptist. So this seems like quite uh, the time to talk about Owen, uh, whether or not he is a Baptist. I think that's irrelevant. It's just more of a joke. But anyway, uh, I'll let... Uh, Crawford, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners who aren't familiar with who you are, um, on who you are, and I guess, and why you have had an interest in Owen uh, so far in your life. Thanks, uh, Jordan. Well, my name is Crawford Gribben, as you said. Uh, I teach history at Queen's University Belfast, which is a university here in uh, Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK. Um, I've been interested in Owen, I suppose, for a I suppose about the last 20 years or so since I started doing my uh, PhD in the mid-1990s. And uh, I I came back to him, although my PhD wasn't on Owen, and although he didn't really figure in my PhD, he was someone I came back to um, every so often after that. And then I suppose maybe about 10 years ago, I decided I really wanted to to try to work a bit more um, to to see why he was important and what, what we could learn from him or about him. And that was when I began to uh, put together a, bi- a biography, which came out in 2016, called John Owen and English Puritanism. And um, since then, I've, I suppose my imagination was really sparked a bit more. And uh, I've, I've done another book on Owen, which is coming out with Crossway in a couple of months' time. It's just called An Introduction to John Owen. Um, and uh, it's, it's a very kind of, I hope, accessible uh, and fresh introduction to uh, what's otherwise quite a, a, a tough body of work, I think, to get into. Owen is, is important because uh, he is one of the most learned and one of the most influential 17th century English theologians, maybe uh, the most important English theologian there has been. Uh, he lived 1616 to 1683. That was a really tumultuous period uh, in the history of his country, in the history of Europe. Uh, he lived through the reigns of several kings, through two or perhaps three civil wars. He was involved in the invasion of Ireland, which is notoriously bloody. Uh, He was involved in the invasion of Scotland one year later. 
Um, he was involved in setting up a Republican administration, the only time actually that Britain has been governed as a Republican country, mm. uh, a period that lasted 11 years between 1649 and 1660. Um, he was involved in politics at a very high level. Um, he was uh, Dean of Christchurch uh, in Oxford, as well as Vice-Chancellor of the University of Oxford. Uh, he wrote somewhere in the region of 80 different books, around about 8 million words. So he's one of the most prolific writers of the 17th century. In fact, probably one of the most prolific writers in the English language ever. Uh, and, and yet his career is, is a career that balanced appointment. On the other, he lost all of his children, predeceased them. His first wife died. Um, everything he worked for seemed to have failed. He, he committed his life to the Republican Revolution, which failed partly because of his own attempts to rescue it, bizarrely. But when he died in 1683, uh, the reign of Charles II was about to give way to the reign of James II. And James II was an openly Catholic king. And as far as Owen was concerned, he was dying in the last days of English Protestantism. He was dying as the Reformation itself failed, just as the Revolution had failed um, 30 years before. Um, so Owen has, been, Owen has never been forgotten. Uh, his works were kept in print through the end of the 17th century by various kinds of dissenting groups, Presbyterians and Congregationalists principally. But in the 18th century, he was kept in print by some unusual people, including people like John Wesley, mm. uh, who, who, who tried to preserve his memory and legacy, albeit in modified and edited form. Uh, in the 19th century, he was published in several different editions, one of which was republished in the 20th century by Banner of Truth, uh, an edition that runs to, uh, I'm not sure, somewhere about 24 volumes uh, of, of, of very small Victorian print. Uh, and of course, um, he has been really, I suppose, brought to public prominence within evangelicalism in the last 20 years uh, through this resurgence of a modified form of Calvinism mm. that um, oddly seems to look to Owen for validation or inspiration in different kinds of ways. So I think that's, that's why Owen matters. He's a, a hugely successful writer, hugely influential, and someone that I think is attracting increasing kinds of interest, both from historians and literary scholars theologians like John Webster for example as well as ordinary Christians in the pews. Crossway for example I think are about to publish a complete set, a complete edition of Owen's works but in modernised English and the fact that they think that there's a market for that which is a, a huge project, the fact they think there's a market for that suggests that um, the number of readers of Owen is, is just going to continue to expand. Yeah that's, that's fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, do, so do we know anything about his, his early life? Was he raised in a Christian home? Did he have a conversion experience? What, what do we know about the early years? Well, Owen, Owen was raised uh, in a family, the father of which was a minister in the Church of England. Owen described him as a nonconformist all his days. Um, not quite sure what that means, because the fact that Owen's father continued to work as a minister or as a priest, actually, within the Church of England in that period either shows that he was making concessions to the, 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 the liturgically driven agenda that was dominating the church at that time, or he was quietly 
you know, going about his own business without trying to attract too much attention to himself. Either way, he wasn't the kind of hot Protestant that Owen turned out to be. So Owen was certainly grew up in a, a Christian home, was grateful for that. Writes about his childhood, actually, in sometimes quite moving ways. Um, speaks, I think, quite eloquently about the relationships that children can have with their fathers, um, especially when they're abused in the streets. Uh, when, when they're called names that they run home into their arms of their father. And it's a very warm image that sort of suggests that Owen's home or his experience of childhood was a very positive uh, and, and, and kind experience. In terms of a conversion experience, obviously it's very hard to, 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 to know how you can spot that. Um, and Owen, I don't think, ever writes about his conversion experience in the way that Calvin did, for example. But it's certainly the case that um, several years after he finished his education at Oxford, um, he moved to England, uh, moved to London, I should say, 1642, <coughs> as the civil war was breaking out uh, and, and really began to experience quite a severe bout of depression. Uh, we know at that point he was moving. He wasn't involved in a church as such, but he was going to listen to famous preachers in various churches as he was able to Sunday by Sunday. Um, and his cousin, um, whose name we don't know, invited Owen on this particular Sunday to go and listen to this particular famous preacher in a particular venue. Uh, in the event the famous preacher didn't turn up, um, some unknown individual turned up um, and Owen stayed, heard the sermon uh, about, about being of little faith and, and, and found that the sermon was actually addressing immediately his own spiritual needs. Um, Owen was never able to find out the name of this preacher. Um, so it was a moment certainly when either Owen was converted or where he gained assurance of faith in a very significant way. But either way, it was a moment of extraordinary renewal and I think became the basis of his own understanding of what conversion um, was all about. I think with that story, it's a very attractive story, the unknown preacher and, and the amazing theologian that his sermon produced. Um, I think it's always useful to to be slightly cautious of some of the mythology that tracks around um, some of these bigger names in the history of evangelicalism, uh, because that story sounds very much like Spurgeon's conversion story, mm -hmm. uh, where he too goes to a, a, a snowbound Wesleyan chapel, I think, primitive Methodist chapel. Here's, here's a preacher preach whose name he never finds out and comes gloriously to faith. So there, there's all these kinds of tropes that run through these conversion stories. It's always useful to take them with a little bit of a pinch of salt. That story doesn't come from Owen himself. It comes from someone who writes about Owen many, many decades after the event. Um, so there may be a little bit of myth-making in it, but certainly there's a moment in Owen's life when all of this, all of the, all of the theory that he has studied uh, and, and read about when it suddenly becomes real. Mm. Cool. I, I don't know a lot about Owen's background, so I think that's all pretty interesting, um, considering how much he, and you're mentioning how Crossway is putting together this massive set uh, thinking that there's there's an audience for that. I, I, it seems that there definitely is from what I've experienced. People are interested in Owen. And there's a lot of things that I'm interested in Owen about. And I'd, I'd love for you to, I guess, walk us through some thoughts on, say, Owen's relationship to scholasticism and medieval theology. And maybe the larger question here is just how does he view tradition and scripture? But I'm curious, how does he connect between uh, his own theology and uh, previous, uh, I guess, theological eras? Yes, it's, it's a great question. Uh, Owen 
obviously grows up as a, as a son of a Church of England minister. He, he sees himself inheriting um, not Protestantism in general or not the Reformed tradition in general, but a very English expression of that tradition, the expression of the Church of England. And I suppose you could say that his, his, to modify that or, or to reform that as best he can. If you read through Owen's works from 1642, when he writes his first book, 1643, all the way through to the end of his life, you'll find that he, he engages with a huge number of authors. Uh, in the early part of his career, the touchstones, the idea touchstones, if you like, um, for his work tend to be the writers of classical antiquity. So they tend to be uh, Greek and Roman writers, uh, and, and he's pulling them down to gloss ideas, for example, of propitiation um, or, or other kinds of key theological concepts. Then as he goes, as, as he moves on, he begins to um, engage, I think, a bit more strongly with um, the writers of, of medieval scholasticism and of, of contemporary theologians as well, with contemporary theologians as well, um, either Catholics, um, contemporary reformed writers, and even some of the sort of self-educated, self-publishing authors who spring up in this period uh, and cause so many problems that, that, that Owen really gets frustrated by. Now, I, th I think Owen sometimes gives us the impression of being a really formidably learned theologian. In many respects, he was. He's, he, he's a theologian that continued to read through his whole career. Um, but uh, as, you, as you notice the way in which his footnotes, for example, change over time, his movement from classical citations towards um, scholastic and patristic citations, for example, you find that there's, there's moments of real unevenness in that, where he, he, he is actually not quoting primary sources from primary sources. He's quoting primary sources from compilations of primary sources. Uh, we know this, Richard Snoddy actually has got an article coming out, I think next year in the Westminster Theological Journal, where he, he does some really interesting analysis of the way in which Owen engages with um, contemporary theology. And, and he shows that actually Owen is not going back to these texts and reading them as primary texts. He's using compilations of quotations and actually reproducing the errors that are brought into those uh, mm. transcriptions of primary sources. So later on, obviously, as he continues to read, and think and preach and teach and administer and so on. He, he, he builds up a massive library. Uh, by his death, um, his library is reckoned to have held about 3,000 books, which would have made it one of the biggest private libraries anywhere in England. Um, we've got a good idea of the content of that library because a few months after Owen's death, a, a catalogue of that library was made for an auction sale. Now, I think there's some questions about some of the content in it. The man who was the auctioneer was a bit of a huckster. Uh, and we know that he was in the habit of cramming these auctions with other material and trying to sell it on the on the back of the reputation of whoever's library it was that he was trying to sell. But nevertheless, 3,000 books, massive, massive library, personal library, but also for, for much of his life, for the 1650s anyway, he had the run of the collections at the University of Oxford. So he had, he had a huge... Uh, ability really to, to to engage with some of this material. So very much rooted in tradition. In terms of scholasticism, that's an interesting question. Owen's often thought of as a scholastic theologian. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, I think more or less any time Owen engages with scholasticism, he repudiates it. And certainly after 1660, uh, he writes very, very dismissively 
of the theology of the schools and of their method as well. Hmm. And, and later on, after 1660, which is a big moment of, just, just to give a little bit of a biographical gloss, 1660 is the moment when the revolution fails, when everything he's given his life for fails, he has to re-question everything. And one of the, one of the things he does is he re-questions his entire theological enterprise. And I think at that point he realizes that scholasticism has not really offered him very much. And in the early 1660s, he becomes a really surprisingly biblical, even biblicist mm. theologian, where he writes, maybe we'll talk about this later on, quite dismissively about confessions of faith and really emphasizes the Bible only is what is going to hold us together at this moment of um, ecclesiastical, political, cultural, social crisis and collapse. That's really interesting. I well, guess. Yeah. Go ahead, Brandon. No, I was just going to say this is, I guess it's a perfect time to talk about his, yeah. his relationship to confessionalism. So, I mean, what was, I guess, maybe it sounds like his view towards confessions changed over time, but were there specific confessions that he was tied to at one point? And, you know, maybe talk a little bit about how his views on confessions did change. Cause I think that's super interesting, especially given, you know, what we like to talk about on this podcast is, you know, confessionalism. So I think our listeners would really be interested in hearing that. Yeah, well, I mean, a, a lot depends what you think confessionalism means. Um, <laughs> Fair. Owen, o Owen was ordained as an Anglican, so he had signed up to the 39 Articles. He was given his first um, parish charge uh, by... Um, by, by, by having to pass through and be examined by the Westminster Assembly. So he would have signed up to however much they had formed the Westminster Confession of Faith at that point. Uh, however, in the 1650s, when he became a civil servant working for the Cromwellian administration, and, and when he was really the architect of the Cromwellian religious settlement, he abandoned the Westminster Confession as, as a statement of faith for the National Church. And instead moved from the you know the massive detail of Westminster to create a 16 sentence summary of Christianity in 1652 which was expanded in 1654 to become a 20 sentence summary of Christianity um, uh, all proof texted right then obviously 1658 he gets a chance to revise Westminster along with the congregational divines and they produced the Savoy Declaration, which fine-tunes a number of key themes, covenant of redemption, um, double imputation in justification, which obviously the Baptists pick up on in 1677. So there's, there's Owen. We, we've, we've located him in connection with the 39 Articles, Westminster Confession, a 16-sentence summary, a 20-sentence summary, and in 1658, a full revision of Westminster and the Savoy Declaration. All of that's happening in the space of one decade, right? So wow. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just not exactly sure what it means to say that he is confessional. So I, again, after 1660, um, he writes these books called uh, Fiat Lux, um, 1662, and, and, a, and a sort of a defense of that book in 1664. And in those books, he's, he's kind of saying, look, you know, we can pretty much do away with confessions of faith. Um, the 39 articles is sufficient. And after that, after that point, uh, he argues very strongly in, in these kind of public-facing documents. So in documents he's writing for the general public, he's quite content to say that, that 39 articles 
are consistent with everything that he believes. He's not teaching anything that contradicts them. But then in a different kind of set of writing that's produced privately for the congregational churches, he's arguing that actually we should continue to confess Savoy. Savoy is a really good definition of what it is that we believe. So what does it mean to say that he's confessional? You know, there's a space of 10 or 15 years where he really goes through the full cycle of options, everything from the shortest to the longest, um, three different denominational um, tick boxes, if you like, that, that, that he's signing off on. And yet when he gets the chance to, to try to rebuild congregationalism as a movement after its defeat in 1660, he, he says one thing in public about the value of the, of the 39 articles and a different thing in private, which is about let's hold fast the confession uh, that, 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 that we have made. So Owen, to, to say that he's confessional, I suppose we would, we would want to say that he operates within confessional boundaries. But he's not the kind of theologian that, that's quoting confessions all the time. In fact, even though he designs Savoy and participates in Savoy, uh, I think he only refers to it maybe twice, three times in the rest of his career. Mm. So wow. he's much more interested. He's much more interested in being a biblical theologian. He knows that if he wants to persuade someone, referencing the Bible is, is the only persuasive or authoritative or even spirit-empowered source. Uh, and, and, and I think he's, he's aware that, that confessions of faith can often be quite political documents. They change in their political significance through time. Um, whereas I think he really rests with confidence of what scripture is and what scripture does. That's interesting. Uh, and I guess to change years a little bit, I, I'm curious about his understanding of the covenants and particularly the doctrine of baptism. I know I mentioned the joke earlier that Baptists like to say that he was a Baptist, even though he's not. But what was his understanding there? And how did this relate to Baptists of his time period and after? Because it does seem that at least currently, there are a lot of Baptists who like to draw on Owen's distinctions and use them for their own understanding of the covenants and baptism. So are yeah, they misusing him or, or what's going on there? Yeah, well, I suppose, interesting question, Jordan. It depends who you ask. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, th th there's, lots of, th there's, there's lots of historians out there, historical theologians out there who, who will really want to emphasize that Baptists are misusing Owen. However, if that's the case, Baptists have always misused Owen uh, because, <laughs> the, 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 you know, the similar kinds of Christians were appreciating Owen in Owen's own day for precisely the same reason that they mm. do so now. So there's some, there is something going on there that's worth thinking about um, why it is that particular Baptists or Reformed Baptists, as they might be now, find Owen at least a fellow traveller, if not quite an apologist for their cause. So... It's an interesting question because it goes back to the previous question about confessionalism. So in Westminster, in Savoy, Owen would have signed up to, and indeed in Savoy, written the statement that within a single covenant of grace, there's multiple dispensations. Mm -hmm. With the idea that the covenant at Sinai was one of those dispensations of the covenant of grace. So Owen can say that on the one hand, on the other hand, he can contradict that. And that's one of the reasons why there's this massive debate about Owen's covenant theology. One of the reasons why this debate exists is because I think a lot of the people involved in this debate are not looking at the sources 
as historians, right? So I suppose one of the differences between historians and systematicians is that historians want to see how things change over time. Mm. And systematicians look at things like a jigsaw and want to fit them together to make one complete whole. So I think if, if, we're, to look at, if we're to look at the evidence as historians, we see that Owen's position on covenant theology changes over time. And that's why he can say things that apparently contradict each other. And that's okay, because actually Owen changed his mind on loads of things in his own lifetime. In fact, he said at one point, he that can glory that he hasn't changed his mind won't have me as a rival. You know, in other words, I, I've changed my mind on a lot of things. And in a way, I, I think a lot of people who write about Owen produce him as this kind of iconic reformed theologian who emerges fully formed and never has to engage with doubts or disappointments or defeats and, and you know, emerges out of his academic career at the age of, I don't know, 25 as, as a completely formed theologian who never changed his mind. That's not at all the Owen who reveals himself in these 8 million words, these 80 separate published titles. He is constantly thinking. He's constantly going back to scripture in covenant theology um, and in every other way. Owen wasn't a Baptist. Uh, he, was a, he was a pedo-baptist. But what kind of pedo-baptist was he? He was several kinds of pedo-baptist. So if you, go, if you go to Owen's earliest work, he will argue in his earliest work that baptism takes away uh, the stain of sin. So he, he has a very, very high view of baptism. And he's, he's, publishing, he's publishing that very high, very sacramental view of baptism at a time when people like Cornelius Burgess, who is one of the Westminster Vines, was also defending baptismal regeneration. So today, whenever we hear about baptismal regeneration, we think of that as a very, um, very Anglo-Catholic kind of idea, let's say. Where it exists within Protestantism at all, it exists only in these really liturgical, very high contexts. But actually, baptismal regeneration was a view defended at the Westminster Assembly by Westminster Assembly divines. And Owen never argues for baptismal regeneration, but he has a, 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 he, he has a very high view of what baptism does. Then over time, he, he changes. And actually, uh, after 1652, when he, meets the, when he meets Baptists for the first time, he, he, he moves very quickly to the sign and seal kind of language um, that, you know, that, that, we're, that we're familiar with um, today. Um, so later in life, I think he, he wants to have a very realist view of, of what the biblical language is all about. So, you know, he, he really wants to believe that, that baptized Christians are, are, are saints, that, that somehow they have, been, they, have been, they have been cleaned, but not in his later writing, not cleaned as a consequence of their baptism, but cleaned as a consequence of sanctification. So he, he really does, he does change. So no, Owen's not a Baptist, but it's not, it's not just as easy to say he's a pedo-baptist either, because he's several different kinds of pedo-baptist through his long and, and, and very interesting life as well. So how should we think about Owen? And I guess part of this question hinges on how you would define the Reformed tradition, but um, how do we think about him in relationship to the Reformed tradition? Is he part of a, maybe a, a more narrow channel within the Reformed tradition? Did he, did he start 
maybe his own movement that created a new channel? Um, how do we think about him in relationship to other giant theologians that we would consider reformed? Yeah, that, I think that's a really interesting question, Brandon, because, you know, you, you think of your favorite great theologian. They've often produced a school or a movement of followers, Bart and the Bartians, Calvin, Calvinists. But, but where's Owen's circle of followers? What do you call them? Baptist. Ba- Baptist, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but you, there's, there's no group called the Owenians, you know? So, right. so where, where, where does this go? Is he some kind of full stop? Or, or is there actually a, a, a attraction for these ideas afterwards? Uh, I, I, I'm not sure that Owen saw himself as being in the Reformed tradition. I'm not sure he would have known what the Reformed tradition was. Mm. I think he definitely saw himself as a child of the Church of England and as a child of the English Reformation. He definitely saw himself as coming out of English Puritanism. So there is this kind of argument out there that Owen's really writing for a European scholastic audience. He's not. He's writing in English. That, that tells you almost everything he writes is in English, one or two exceptions, but almost everything he writes is in English. That tells you who he's writing for. He, he's not writing to impress Coxeus. He's writing to impress the people in his parish. He's trying to persuade them, people in his congregation. That's his audience. That's who he wants to, to think of. So I don't think he thinks of abstractions like the Reformed tradition. I think he thinks of the congregational churches, the ministers he knows, the people he preaches to, marries, buries. Um, so what's his relationship then to the English Reformed tradition, let's say? Well, I think he, obviously he builds on it. He also tries to, 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 to modify it. Um, I think you can see that his move to congregationalism is a very significant moment of modification. Uh, the way he then works that out through the 1660s and 70s in a context of really difficult persecution, uh, I think modifies it even further. So, okay, on the one hand, you've got Owen as the great exemplar of English Reformed theology. On the other hand, when you start reading his works, you've got Owen arguing that church membership is only for visible saints, not for their children. Mm. You've also got him saying that the supper should be held weekly and always in conjunction with the preaching of the word. You've also got him saying that, that Christians, ordinary Christians, should be able to meet as often as they want to to study the Bible without ministers or elders overseeing what they do or say. You've also got them arguing that not only will the Jews be converted en masse in the latter days, but that they'll actually be restored to the promised land. So, you know, on the one hand, you've got Owen as the inheritor of Reformed tradition. On the other hand, you've got a man in very particular historical circumstances making the kinds of arguments that we really don't hear made very often within the Reformed tradition, but we hear being made quite often, actually much more often than we might expect within the cultures, the very distinctive cultures, I think, of English Puritanism uh, in, in, in this very difficult and actually extremely dangerous period, a period of extraordinary persecution. So I think you mentioned this a little early on about Owen's relationship to, I guess, our current evangelical culture over the last 20 or 30 years. What is his relationship to our contemporary theological culture? Like, um, why is it that 20 or 30 years ago, he suddenly gets on the scene? And how does he uh, fundamentally shape how Christians act now? That's a really interesting question. Um, 
Owen was always on the scene, but it was a tiny scene. So I mentioned Wesley republishing him in the 18th century. In the 19th century, Scottish Presbyterians republished uh, his ecclesiological works as part of their um, defense of, of what they were trying to do in terms of pulling the church away from the state. Um, English publishers in the 19th century tended to publish his, his books on spirituality or, or piety. Uh, that's what they really appreciated. Um, various publishers over the years attempted to um, condense his massive commentary in Hebrews and to keep that in print. Um, different groups found Owen helpful for different things. So, for example, um, the Plymouth Brethren, the group in the 19th century from which dispensationalism emerged, looked at Owen a lot. They saw Owen as a kind of fellow traveller. And that's, I think that's a really interesting moment in the reception of Owen, actually. Um, obviously, then Banner Truth Keep Owen going from the 1950, late 1950s onwards, publishes complete works in the 1960s. Um, his Hebrew set, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s, maybe. Um, but what is it in the 90s that really triggers the interest in Owen? I don't think we know, is the honest truth. Uh, that There is this... Um, I suppose the, 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 there's this strange, almost celebrity-driven moment within American evangelicalism where a number of high-profile preachers suddenly come onto the scene and people try to explain who they are, what they believe, how they fit into things. And I think then um, some of those preachers start referring to, 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 to Owen and think that's maybe how he mm. comes into being. But the, the Owen that gets recovered in that is not the Owen of history. It's a very different kind of Owen. It's an Owen whose life is um, a life of exemplary piety or an Owen who is um, a role model for people who might want to shape a culture. The Owen of history is an Owen who's defeated again and again and again and again. And I think that's actually why he is much more helpful um, than, than, than I think perhaps people give him credit for. The own the who reveals himself in his published works is an own who sees failure after failure, death after death, disappointment after disappointment, defeat after defeat. And at the, I mean, as he dies, he thinks the Reformation itself is over. So we, we can't compute that. But in 1683, that's exactly how things look. How, how influential do you think uh, Banner of Truth is? I realize we can't just pin on everything on you know, one publisher, but in the resurgence of Owen, you know, they have the Puritan paperbacks. I know they have some of his works there. And then also, you know, they've, they've published volumes of his work as well. And it seems like maybe his rise coincides with their popularity, but I don't, I don't know if that's too simple of an explanation no i think i mean i think that there's um there's definitely something there to think about the the banner of truth when it comes onto the scene in 1958 or whenever it is wants to promote a certain version of puritanism uh, it, it's not it's not interested in puritanism as a political force right. so it's it's not interested as reconstructionists are in the states and how the literature of Puritanism might actually have a much broader, more ambitious, more dangerous kind of agenda. Banner of Truth is very pietistic. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they, they package Owen to, 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 to do that. But, 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 I mean, we owe Banner of Truth an enormous debt, an enormous debt. 
one, one thing I would say though, just as, as, a, uh, as an observation, not as a criticism, but as an observation, is that their decision to start their own publishing project with the death of death was actually quite unfortunate because mm. it's really unrepresentative of Owen's ideas. Owen changes his mind and some of the ideas he has in the death of death within about four or five years and actually writes books that attacks them. Really? Yeah. So on, on, yeah, on, on the necessity of the atonement. So in, in death of death, he argues that um, God could simply forgiven sins by a decree. Um, within four or five years, he says that's the bedrock of Socinianism. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he, he really moves 180 degrees in that. So, um, so that, that one qualification aside, Banner of Truth have supplied us with pretty good edition, um, the best edition we have anyway of, of, of Owen's works. Um, the tragedy is, I suppose, that so few people who bought them actually read them. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, that's, just, that's, that's, always been, that's always been Owen's problem. He's always struggled to get readers. Uh, in fact, it's amazing when you go back in some of these um, antiquarian book archives to see how many of the copies of Owen, even dating from the 17th century, show no evidence of ever being read. So mm. Owen has always been this kind of talisman that you buy and put in your shelf, and you hope that the knowledge <laughs> somehow drops, you know, like osmosis <laughs> uh, in, in, into your head. Unfortunately, uh, the words have to go through one eye and out the other uh, before they really make much of a connection. Yeah, you mentioned that Death of Death book. I I completely forgot. I read that back in college. That was the first Owen book I ever read. Uh, so that oh, is, yeah. it's really interesting because I think that's probably the only, well, Mortification of Sin uh, I've read, but those are probably the only two that I read of Owen and just well, haven't. Do you, do you know what, Jordan? If you've got time, you've got time during the lockdown, read Communion with God. It is the best book uh, on spirituality that comes out of English Puritanism. Hmm. And it's, it's a brilliant book of doctrinal devotion or devotional doctrine. It's a great book about the Trinity. Uh, it's just an outstanding, outstandingly good book. So um, before we start to, to, to wind down, um, can you tell us a little bit about Owen's relationship with John Bunyan? You know, since Bunyan is a, an early Baptist figure um, that our listeners are, are interested in talk about, um, I know, at least I think this is right that Owen heard Bunyan preach um, and had some kind things to say about his preaching. Can you talk a little bit about their relationship? They had one. Um, Bunyan is a Baptist in the same way that Owen is a Baptist. <laughs> Which is to say, not a very good one. Um, but Bunyan was obviously baptized as a believer, but Bunyan actually had his own children baptized as infants. Mm-hmm. So, there's, there's a bit more going on here but but th- this help i think it helps us think about the, the nature of the ecclesiastical relationships that existed at the time um bunyan bunyan wasn't really a baptist uh, although baptists like to claim him um there's, there's a lot of kind of myths about owen's relationship with bunyan the, the famous story but um bunyan or owen rather talking to charles ii and the king asking owen why he could be bothered you know, listening or to or spending time with, with uh, Bunyan, who was obviously an unlettered tinker. And I think the story is something like Owen said, if you know, he, he would love to preach like like Bunyan does. There's no real evidence for that kind of story. Like lots of these, how you 
hagiographical stories that, 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 that go around. Um, I think what we do know is that, that Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress was published while he was in prison simply because Owen interceded uh, with his publisher and got his publisher, Nathaniel Ponder, to publish Pilgrim's Progress, which obviously became uh, much more popular than any book that Owen himself ever published. And I think there's also some indication that Owen interceded uh, with some uh, bishops uh, within the Church of England to get Bunyan released. So that that is there. Um, Bunyan's attraction to Owen would have been his really intense piety. There would have been lots about Bunyan's theology that Owen would have found very, very difficult. For example, his covenant theology that, 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 that we talked about earlier on. Bunyan's covenant theology is, is, is kind of strange uh, in, in, in lots of ways. Bunyan's touchstone is always Luther hmm. uh, more, than, more than anyone else. Um, so I, I think um, all, all, of, all of that is there in terms of influence in Bunyan. That's good stuff. I, yeah, there, there's a lot of other questions I have about Owen that I want to ask, um, but we might have to save them for another time. I guess, can you briefly touch on Owen's relationship between the church and the state and how that worked out? Uh, yeah. Um, again, it changes over time. So in the 1640s, whenever Owen starts his clerical career, he starts as a Presbyterian. And that's a time when the Presbyterian party itself is in power. In 1658, the Presbyterian MPs pass uh, an act called the Blasphemy Act, which makes it a capital crime to be Catholic and which makes it a crime worthy of imprisonment to be Baptist or Arminian or other kinds of things. So um, Owen gets, I think, quite concerned about this, especially after he converts to Congregationalism in the mid-1640s, and, and I think feels himself very much at the mercy of that state. Um, by the time uh, he reaches the 1650s, he's obviously a member of the state. You know, He's quite a high-ranking statesman. He's one of the architects of the religious settlement of, uh, of, of, of the Republic itself. So he's really defining who it is whose opinion should be tolerated. Remember those 16 sentence, 20 sentence statements mm -hmm. of faith? Their role is, is a government role. Uh, and, and it's to define which opinions should be tolerated. Any minister during that period who Owen signs off on will get a stipend from the state. So you could say that during the 1650s, he's essentially an Erastian. He believes the state is there to fund the church. Um, the state is certainly there to say which religious opinions should be tolerated. Um, but it's a very broad, a very broad kind of um, thing. In the 1660s, after the revolution, uh, the situation changes again. Owen's got a much clearer view of himself as a, as a dissenter. Um, he still believes the state has a duty to confess religion. But he's happy enough with the 39 Articles. He's happy that 39 Articles should be the statement of faith uh, of, of, of the National Church. And, and he's, he's happy to abide by that. But by that stage, he's also back to where he was in the 1640s. He's back to wanting to be tolerated uh, uh, by the state. So relationship between church and state, again, it changes over time. It's constantly changing. But, but eventually settles down to this idea where he doesn't want the dissenting churches to be comprehended within the established church, as Baxter argues. He wants, Owen wants this, the dissenting churches to be kept outside the established church, but to be tolerated by it. But he fully agrees with the power of the establishment. He wants the power of the establishment to tolerate him. 
So one, one last question and then we will uh, let you go. We want to just get a few resources, uh, resource recommendations from you. I know you've already mentioned uh, Communion with God by Owen. And then uh, yeah. I know you've mentioned a couple of your own works, but are there any other things either by Owen himself or, or about him that you would um, recommend our listeners check out? Yeah, sure. Um, well, there's, just to mention two things that I've done. One is 2016 a biography called John Owen and English Puritanism. So that's out in paperback. It should be reasonably available. Um, if people are starting one for the very first time, I've got a little book coming out with Crossway this summer, uh, all being well, called An Introduction to John Owen, um, which tries to pull out some of his key ideas. Um, it also includes the prayers that Owen wrote for children. So there's some new material in there, I think, uh, as well that, that people haven't seen before. Uh, so that's biography. In terms of theology, uh, a really good introduction to Owen is Michael Haken and Matthew Barrett. John Owen and the Christian Life, published by Crossway, maybe about five years ago, something like that. It's a great general description of Owen's views of lots of different theological topics. If you're interested in seeing how Owen reads scripture, a really great resource is John Tweeddale's book, John Owen on Hebrews, which uh, gives a, a really important examination of that really big commentary that, that, that Owen publishes over many years at the end of his life. And then just one last one. If you want to think about how one fits into the broader cultures of English Puritanism, you can't do better than read Tim Cooper's book, John Owen, Richard Baxter, and the Formation of Nonconformity. Uh, that came out from Ashgate, um, I think about 2011. And that book, Tim Cooper's book, uh, John Owen, Richard Baxter, and the Future of Nonconformity, is probably the most important book to have been published in Owen because it really set a new research agenda. And everything that's come out since has had to respond to it. So it's a great book. And then finally, um, if people are interested in keeping up to date with things that happen in own studies, I keep a little blog where I, re I make a note of any new publications that are relevant to Owen. Uh, and that the blog address is simply puritanhistory.wordpress.com. puritanhistory.wordpress.com. And that's a very brief uh, notice blog, I suppose, of any new publications that come up in this field fantastic and so i guess that's the key place that people should go if they want to follow what you're publishing and putting out or is there other places uh, they can go yeah. to follow you and um, nope that's probably as good as any yeah okay. but hopefully that blog captures everything that everybody's publishing in the world. yeah I, I try and keep it as an aid memoir um, and if i've missed things maybe listeners could email me uh, and, and show me what they are so that, that that blog keeps up to date with everything i think post 2016 got it that's awesome. Well, right. yeah, Crawford, thanks a ton for joining us on the show to talk to us about Owen. I feel like I learned a lot just about the overall historical context as well. And that was really interesting and helpful to kind of place him in that and give me a better understanding of what's going on during that period. So we want to thank you a lot for joining us. Um, and for those who've been listening, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast that exists. And we thank you for tuning in. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.